Welcome to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio, bringing you insights and strategies to help you create a magnificent and fulfilling second half of life. Here's your host, certified professional retirement coach and best-selling author, Dr. Dorian Mincer. I want to welcome everybody to my fourth Tuesday Revolutionize Your Retirement interview with Expert Series. I'm Dory Minter. I'm owner of Revolutionize Your Retirement and host for today. And we're in for a wonderful discussion today with Suzanne Braun Levine. Let me tell you a little about Suzanne Braun Levine and then we'll start the conversation. As many of Suzanne Braun Levine is a writer, editor, a nationally recognized authority on women, family, changing gender, gender roles, and also the media. She was the first editor of Ms. Magazine, and she's author of a number of books, which include Inventing the Rest of Our Lives, Women in Second Adulthood, 50 is the New 50, How We Love, Father Courage, What Happens When Men Put Family First, and You Gotta Have Girlfriend. She's a contributor to more magazines and blogs for RRP, sorry, it's changed now, RRP, Huffington Post, 50, and Next Avenue, and other things. She's an advisor to several women's and media groups and organizations dealing with midlife transitions. She's on the board of Encore.org, which, as many of you know, is Second Act for the Greater Good, and a think tank on boomers' work and social purpose. Her newest book, Can Men Have It All? What the Daddy Track Means for Women, examines the changing role of fatherhood and the state of the work-life balance for modern couples. And this was a subject that she introduced in her pioneering book, Father Courage, What Happens When Men Put Family First. She lives in New York with her husband, who's an attorney, and they have two adult children. I'm just going to add that I was able, I felt very fortunate that I got to meet Suzanne in person at the most recent Encore Summit that was in Tempe, Arizona. And I had been aware of one of her books when we talked. I went and was busily reading it because I always to read the book before our discussion. And I really want to say that I think Suzanne walks the walk, as they say. She really wants this to be a conversation and a discussion about reinventing ourselves in the second half of life, focusing on women and also on what happens with men. And as I said, I really encourage all of your questions and comments. So I want to start really with a question I viewed, Suzanne, I think I said this to you on the phone when we spoke, really, you were really part of the leading edge of the women's movement and were really involved from the get-go. And I realized when we spoke, and I also to tell people when I read your book, I mean, you are such a kindred spirit to all of these <laughs> issues that we've been dealing with, talking about on our the monthly webinars and the work I do. And you put a pulse on it, and it's just really exciting. I really encourage everybody to read all of her books that you just write in this wonderful conversational way that just says, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. So that's really true. So maybe we could start by how did you first get involved yourself, a little of your own story, getting involved with men? You were part of the women's Mm -hmm. movement. From the get-go. So maybe we can just start with that and then talk about this journey here that we are all going sure, through. Sure. I have been so lucky to have been doing work all my adult life that really helped me invent my own life. 
the experience at Ms. absolutely changed my life. I walked into Ms. really not an activist, not even a feminist. My skills were as a magazine editor. And as I joined that wave of self-discovery and change and daring and scary backlash and all of those things, my life changed. Just to give you a sense of how unradical I was in 1972 when I went to work at Ms. My first day at work, I wore a pink silk blouse, a pink cashmere skirt, and a girdle. So I don't think I need to say any more. I really woke up to a lot of things there. And one of the messages of Ms. Magazine from the very beginning was that it was the most important thing the women's movement could do was to get, enable women to tell the truth about their lives and listen to each other. Because at that point, you remember Betty Friedan about the problem that has no name, many women were living lives that didn't feel right. And they thought it was their fault. They were either crazy or they were the only one. And in fact, I did a documentary called She's Nobody's Baby about the history of the women's movement. And one of the shocking things that we discovered is that so many women were prescribed tranquilizers by their GPs because they would come in with these vague symptoms of dissatisfaction or inertia or anger. And all these male doctors would quickly decide there was something wrong with them and uh, prescribe tranquilizers. Starting from there, the whole notion of telling the truth about our lives became an editorial principle at Ms. And basically, that's what I've been doing ever since. Every book I've written, every talk I've given, every conversation that I have had has been basically sharing my experience and listening to other people's experience. And I think that's how our generation has gotten where we are, by sharing and trusting And God knows by laughing. I think that's one of our best tools. And I think by now, you ask me, I've written about women, but I think at this stage of life, men have found themselves in many of the same kind of and confusion that the women I have been writing about have found themselves in. I think they are. They haven't been at it so long. So I think a lot of men find this period very distressing and confusing and are very anxious to find people to tell the truth to. Men don't have the kind of posse that women do. And I think one of the real challenges for men at this stage is to find people that they trust and that they can share their life experience with. But it's interesting that men and women come to 
this stage in life with a lot of issues in common, which is not necessarily the way it was in earlier stages. Mm-hmm. That is really interesting to think about. I, even when I was reading a little with Can Men Have It All, even that phrase, it's so interesting to think about how, we, how in a way, we've come and you've come full circle in thinking about it, because that notion of having it all back in the women's movement was really having all these life options. And it does seem that, that men are trying now to be more involved with family and to forge a different path for themselves. And it's not always supported by people. What did happen to women way back? So, Absolutely. Balancing act, yeah. Absolutely. I think men are punished in those subtle ways that women were punished. When I was writing, especially when I was writing Father Courage, the new book celebrates how far things have come since then. But men, there was one guy I will never forget when he told me this story. He worked out a way, because he wanted to be with his kids, he worked out a way to be home one day a week and take his infant daughter to the park. And on one occasion, he was in the park with his daughter, and the women who were there with their children were distressed that they called the cops because they thought either he had kidnapped this little or he was some kind of arrest. And I now walk around my neighborhood, and I see men with carriages and strollers and backpacks and slings. I see them wiping noses and fixing bottles and dealing with tantrums. And it's absolutely clear that there is a growing percentage of men who are now real day-to-day parents, which is not to say that those same men, when they go to work, aren't subtly penalized for not putting their work first not being available 24-7, not be, seeming to be ambitious. It's like they sort of broke the code, and the system isn't really receptive to their priorities. Yeah, that's part of what's been continuous throughout, is that our particular society has not been very supportive, I think, in the past, and maybe you've seen it more now a little bit in relation to men, of finding ways to be supportive to people in this whole balancing act of work and mm-hmm. life. Very complicated. So much of the earlier movement was really thinking about life and transitions, which still continue, but the first adulthood. And much of your work and a lot of the people on the call are themselves in the same ages that you and I are in, too, which is dealing with the second adulthood. So I will be able to think about that, too, both for men and women, of what it is that is changing for us now. And one of the things I really love is that you make a focus. You say it's not age, it's stage, which I think is so important. And I wondered if you could elaborate on that. I think we don't take seriously enough this major life transition that we're going through. And our inclination is to forge ahead or make a list and just get on with it. But in fact, the remarkable thing is, first of all, that this is a new stage. 
no generation has been active, effective, healthy, dynamic, engaged, drawn out there in the world the way ours is in the ages 50 to 70. It just what it wasn't there. At 50, one could expect that it was women went through what was called the change of life, if you remember that phrase. And basically that meant that women's lives were supposed to stop changing. But what's important to understand is that so we're told all the time, oh, we have this gift of 20 more years. And the notion is that those, the way we hear that is that those 20 years are at the end of life, so that the 20 years are from 70 to 90. But in fact, those 20 years are in the middle. And that's what's so exciting is that, and that's where the second adulthood is, that if you think of your first adulthood from, say, 25 to 50, you have an equivalent amount of time when you're 50 ahead of you to do it over, to do it different, to review your experience, to try new things. And it's a real, it's a wedge that's been put in our generation between being an adult and being an old person. So it's a big deal. And the other element is that the transition into that period is a major physiological, psychological, emotional transition. And it's important to understand that it is very much like adolescence, a transition that we give a lot of respect and attention to. In both cases, there's hormonal upheaval, there's questioning your relationship, there's the real tormenting question of what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Who am I? What matters to me? And if we think of how much attention we gave to our kids when they were going through adolescence, we should try to give that same kind of attention to ourselves because this is a big change. And one of the things that people have taught me is that it takes longer than we would like to really make that transition. I call that period of confusion and doubt and concern and bewilderment, I call it the fertile void. Because just when we want to be able to think our way through something, we find ourselves with more questions than answers. And those questions are good. And the time that we owe ourselves to deal with them is good. And that's why, although it feels like a void, I have found that it is a very fertile void and a very exciting part of the transition. I love the term, the fertile void. It's interesting that I can't remember if it was Mark Friedman or somebody, maybe if it was Mark when he spoke, when he was talking about this middle age period, just like what you're saying about second adulthood. And he had used the term middle essence, you know, the middle age of adolescence. And it's never caught on, but it's, <laughs> it's, 
it's with the questions that you're talking about, the who am I, or if you're in a relationship, who are you, who are we? And I think you're so right. There's been so much focusing on other people that women, and I think men too, but I think particularly for women, there is that, oh my gosh, I have to put some time into really figuring out who I am and what I want to do and often not having taken time for it. The other thing that occurs to me with the fertile void is because it's so much of a transition and we're just thinking about William Bridges' work about ending the neutral kind of zone and then new beginnings. In a way, the fertile void is more specifically that neutral zone when everything's in flux. Absolutely. It's such a wonderful term, but go on. I just wanted to comment on that. I totally agree that women have a lot to pay attention to in terms of themselves. Gloria Steinem says that it's time to do unto yourself as you have been doing unto others. And I think she's absolutely right that women have, we have been trained to constantly be looking out for other people to develop the instinct so that we can figure out what they need, what they want, to put ourselves at the bottom of our list, and basically to try to help and please the people around us, which is why for women, it becomes such a great liberation when they get to the point, and we all do, where we wake up one morning and look around and say, oh my God, I don't care what people think anymore. And that is just about the most mind-blowing notion for somebody who has spent her whole life caring what other people think. And once you stop caring what other people think and start caring what about what you think, you're on your way to a whole different experience. And that's why, and this applies to men as well. It's the key insight to this stage of life. And you mentioned something similar, I noticed, in your couples, is that you are not who you were, only older. You are whoever it is that you are becoming now. So all of the assumptions that you made about yourself no longer apply. I'm a bookworm, I'm lazy, I'm ambitious, I'm short-tempered, I'm good-natured, whatever. Many of those things are not going to come into play in the personality that is emerging as you go through this exciting new stage. So true. I just want to underscore, and because what you say, it's a simple phrase, but so important. You are not who you were, only older. I think that's mind-boggling to think about because it's mm. so easy to think that we just go along this track. And sometimes people use the expression, you become more of who you were. What you're talking about and the notion of the fertile void is that there's really this opportunity to emerge knowing ourselves in such a full different way. It's interesting. One of the the words that came up so often in the interviews I did was authenticity. Mm -hmm. I think this is a point in our lives where we're trying to figure out what of our traits and behaviors we develop in order to be successful in our world and which of those are the authentic core traits that we want to explore and uncover 
in this new, again, this new adventure. And coming from our strengths, too. It sounds, what are the core traits? What are our strengths? Really getting to know each other more, our, knowing ourselves more deeply, I think, and in all the good, bad, and ugly parts of it. Accepting the ugly part. Right. Accepting the things that we thought we wanted to do. So many times people said to me, here I am at a stage of life where theoretically I can do anything I've always wanted to do. And I put those items down on a list I always wanted to. Now you have trekked. I have not trekked, but that might have been on my list. Um, and all the things I always wanted to do. And then they say to me, but I look at that list. And I don't want to do those things. What's wrong with me? Why am I not giving myself the gift of doing what I always wanted to do? And the truth of the matter is that list was composed by who you were and not who you are now. And that's part of the confusion is that you're thrown back on yourself to discover who is writing the list. And that it may involve some losses of having, of deciding to give up some of those things that they just mm-hmm. are going to be, they're just not important. It's like different priorities. They're not as important anymore, or I can't do them anymore because. Exactly. Whatever. Yeah. You used, love your phrase, the fuck you fifties and that says me sixties. I wanted to say we it's okay to say that. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Can you, and I do agree, because I remember reading that somebody had suggested you should say the feisty 50s, but it's not the same. There is this, there's something about just what you said before, when you reach a point and you say, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to say no more, or I don't want to be in toxic relationships anymore. It's it's so important. So it's just, that's that's the feeling, because it's outrageous, because you're sure, you're not sure that you ought to say it in polite company, it is. Just saying fuck you, Fisty, is a way of saying fuck you. <laughs> and that kind of ba- behaving badly is something that women have spent so much of their life trying not to do. And suddenly here we are, and it's so much fun. I find myself sometimes... Just trying, just being outrageous to see the look on people's faces. <laughs> and another part of it is, of course, that having an, a, in my pink outfit, you can imagine <laughs> that I was somebody who was very anxious to be liked. And it would distress me if I thought somebody didn't like me. And to now be at a point in my life where if somebody doesn't like me, I say, well, I don't like them so much either. The whole notion of having somebody disagree with you or disapprove of you gets your juices going. Yeah. But I, there is one form of disapproval that we should talk a little about, which is ageism. We live in a culture that no matter how dynamic and excited we are about our lives, we often find ourselves dismissed or belittled just because of how we look. And it's very hard to both resist that disdain from the outside world and not absorb some of the internalize it to ourselves 
And I, there's so many times I do it myself and I am constantly aware, but I can't deny that I have these reflexes when I'm getting on a bus, say, or going through a checkout counter and there's somebody who looks old in front of me and she hasn't gotten her Metro card ready or hasn't gotten her wallet out of her pocketbook so that we have to stand there and watch, waste our time. I say to myself, God, you know, and why can't that old lady get it together? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's something that I struggle with all the time because I know I look like her. And that's really a very weird feeling. Yeah. I have become one of these people who is constantly checking whether I have all my things, my keys, my wallet, is my phone. I never did that before. I would put them in my pocketbook and go about my business. But there is something that comes with this stage of life that gets Mitchell rooting around in your stuff for no reason. And that's the kind of thing that particularly annoys me. So I have this one wish, which I, if I were really feisty and didn't care what people think, I would exercise. Maybe one day I will do it. I walk down the street and I see somebody coming towards me who looks to me old. And I dying to stop them and find out how old they are because the likelihood is that they are, that I am their age or even older. And I think a lot of us are trying to figure out how we appear to the world. My husband's always saying to me when we're watching television, are they our age? Are they older? And I think we have a very confused sense of how we appear to the world because of how the world treats us and because of our own internalized misgiving. So ageism, it's in a way the new revolution, the new movement is to combat ageism the way we struggled against sexism and racism. I think you're absolutely right. And the hard part is it's so insidious because, as you Mm -hmm. say, we don't even realize that we're products of it as well, in spite of our best intention. Mm -hmm. I want to integrate a few questions in here now. I have, I'm going to try to keep some to what we're talking about now. And then a few were from earlier, but we'll take us back there later. But Bill from Maine says, what do you do to overcome your old image? I am trying very hard to embrace that whatever my current experience is, I'm having a little trouble because I've gone past 70, which I never imagined I would do. <laughs> and I have to say to myself that I am in the old group now, but that doesn't necessarily mean thing in particular about how I live. And again, it's, I, it's the notion that there is a sequence of life experience and that some of them 
if you are at the wrong age for certain life experience, you're not entitled to it. And I, I had that experience back in my 40s because I was, we were married for 20 years before we had children. And I had my children in my 40s and was therefore old enough to be the mother of their teachers, their friends' parents, and old enough to be their grandparents, which people sometimes thought I, we were. And so I understand what it's like to be at a, a stage in your life that is very different from the perceived stage from the outside world. And part of this also is the decisions that people make to alter their appearance. People ask me how I feel about plastic surgery. I truly believe that we ought to be able to make our own decision. And if somebody wants to look a certain way for themselves, that's one thing. But it's they want to you trying to please the outside world, that's not going to be very satisfying. There is a doctor, a woman with my name in New York. Her name is Suzanne Levine. And one of her specialties is cutting off the last joint in a woman's middle toe in order to enable her to sit into pointy shoes. I've not heard of that. I don't, I'm not happy that we have the same name. No. But I would say that is an example of un- unacceptable self-modification. But there are yeah, other things. I agree with do. you. Yeah. There are other things that people do and they look in the mirror and that they like what they see. The external stuff is very hard to evaluate because we live in a culture that don't worship youth, that there's no alternative. And I think in terms of shopping for clothes, there's very little choice as you get older. And as you get older and, for example, can no longer wear belts, there, there, there's a whole category of quotes that are no longer available to you. And that's why I think Eileen Fisher has become such a goddess to women of our age. I was somewhere where she came out on a stage to introduce somebody or something minor, and the audience rose to its feet and cheered because of what she represented in terms of authenticity. That Back to what you said before, that really people want now to feel real and not feel like they have to fit in any mold or look a certain way. And yeah. This is what I, yeah, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah. No, because I think you're staying with what you were just saying. And I was, no, I was just saying that uh, yeah. we all have such gratitude for the stretch waistband that she just had popularized. <laughs> yep. As I sit here wearing them right now, I'm just looking at it. the reason why I'm hesitating. There's all these wonderful comments and questions here that I want to reflect on. 
But one of the things I did want to comment before we move on is you say you're now in the old group past 70. You said at the middle age is like 50 to about 75 or 80 is what I hear. So it's where you want to put yourself. But let me put it this way. If I die tomorrow and somebody saw my obituary, they wouldn't Mm. say she died before her time. Uh, That's all I mean. I think I would. I'd say that when I, because I like reading the stories and the obituaries. And I do too. Somebody under, yeah. People's stories and lives are so incredible. So some comments to integrate here. Let me find them. Mary from California says, this is a comment. She says, you mentioned that this stage includes recognizing what we don't want anymore. Her comment is that many times we know what we don't want and can use it to clarify our path forward as it can lead to understanding what we do want. And so I, maybe if you want to comment on that. Oh, I totally agree. And yeah. I had a very cool experience with that because we moved recently. We downsized. And I had to go through stuff that I had saved my whole life. We all know this experience. And I realized that I was that this was a great opportunity because I was downsizing, but I was also upgrading. And by actually confronting what I didn't want or didn't need or didn't remember and getting rid of it was a very exhilarating process because so much of our baggage is Stuff we haven't questioned and stuff that we don't want or need. Once we question it, we have the sort of clarifying experience of realizing we don't want it or need it. And I think this certainly applies. I talk about it in my book about girlfriends. This certainly applies to friendships because so many of our relationships have, we've never questioned them. And many people told me when I was writing that book about toxic friendship. I think we've all had those friends, the ones who don't listen or criticize or don't celebrate your successes or aren't trustworthy. And this becomes a time of life when you really look at your relationships and say, wait a minute, I want to really concentrate on the ones that matter and not waste my time on the ones that are either frivolous or toxic. And I think probably most of us have experiences of trying to get out of relationships that just don't feel nurturing anymore. Absolutely. And I think it's, it is one of the hardest kind of things. It ties into reaching a point in life where you say, I don't want to apologize anymore. Yes. I don't want to say yet to things I don't want to do anymore. And it's a time of reckoning. Say so with one. That's a good phrase. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. So let me integrate. So Meg from Weston says, wonderfully rich, thoughtful discussion. She wants to suggest that what you were saying about the transition to second adulthood is really a series of transitions with several potential fertile voids. And that the hardest may be the transition to old age with all of the D words, such as dependency, dementia, and death, a real test of character. Absolutely. The D word. 
But, and the D word, you can't laugh them off. You can't, a friend of mine calls herself Cleopatra, queen of denial. <laughs> the point where be the queen of denial doesn't do you much good. But there is also something that happens when you are confronting these issues. A friend of mine calls it the gift of urgency, by which she means that the fact that you know that the evil experiences lie ahead makes it the present be so much more precious and makes those decisions about what to keep and what to get rid of much easier. Because if you say, I don't have the time to wait on this or that, it clarifies. It brings a lot of clarity. But I do think that's a good point, is that the transition is really a series of transitions. And maybe the whole message is that it, in this, as we move on from first adulthood right up to the end, is a period of transition. I hadn't thought that before, but yes. an interesting concept. Because transitions really do have those, the ending, the unknown, and the new beginning. Mm-hmm. Multiple ones. So that is a helpful way, I think, to think about it. So Donald from Canada said, the meaning researched, people searching for meaning are less happy than those consolidating what they believe their purpose must be. Does this prospect of serious discomfort present a conundrum for people facing a big transition as they consider all the risky uncertainty? And he wondered if you had any thoughts and advice hey, on that. Hey, that hasn't been my experience that people who are longing for more meaning are unhappy. That's a quest that many people undertake at this stage of life, and they find ways to satisfy that need for meaning and giving back that are tremendously satisfying. Everything from grandparenting, which so many people, I am not there yet, because as you remember, my children are young, but the idea is a lot of men in particular find grandparenting a joyous opportunity to have a do-over if they were the kind of more traditional fathers who went to work and came home and didn't get involved in the day-to-day lives of their children. To get involved with their grandchildren is a tremendous gift that a lot of men didn't even know was available to them. But there's another search that I find fascinating that shows people become report themselves to be happier at 50 and then happier again at 60 and even happier at 70 than anybody who is in their 20s or 30s. And part of this, I think, is due to understanding this growing awareness of what's important and who you are and gratitude for what your life has given you. So, and I certainly feel these are happier years mm-hmm. than my younger years. I think many people say that. I remember, oh, who was it? Oh, I can't remember the person who said it. But anyway, basically it was at a staging conference and it was this wonderful comment that she was with a group of 20 men 
he made, she told this story about making a comment to them about, I just want to tell you all it's going to get better. Because she was clearly the oldest person on the boat. On the <laughs> and it was real, really realizing just the despair that younger people have and that there is something about getting older. And it's the wisdom that's the difference between adolescence and second adulthood. That kind of hopefully yes. the wisdom and perspective that people have. So let me integrate. All right. So Elizabeth says it tied into to think about of that many people in our generation, many of the men, really love that opportunity for grandparenting. And so it's interesting to think about as men are at a younger age now are getting involved in parenthood, how that's going to change this next stage for them. But Elizabeth's question is, let's see, thank you, Suzanne. Yes, it's wonderful to see fathers so engaged with their children. And yet there is a kind of breaking the code. But what's your perspective about all the generations focus on more flexible work focused on results and not just putting in time. Any thoughts about how this will help relationships in the family? I think that I am very encouraged by the young people I see who are determined to make the workplace more responsive to the rest of their lives and to question whether everybody has to have a career path that is upward and onward. And whether just having enough rather than having it all is a more realistic and satisfying life goal. And what's interesting to me about this among younger families to make the workplace more flexible and receptive to the needs of people who have real lives besides their work is that makes the... People, older people, 50, 60, 70, who want to or need to continue to work have the same issue, which is that they don't want to be on call 24-7. They want to bring their expertise and their wisdom and their loyalty into the workplace, but they don't want to become slaves to it. And it seems to me that there's the possibility that people like that, who want to keep working at a more humane level, have a lot in common with these younger families, and that there is a chance that between these two groups, the workplace can really become more responsive. And people say that younger people have children and caregiving commitment. But as we know, people in our age group have caregiving responsibilities also. And there are a lot of parallels that make a lot of sense in terms of trying to transform the workplace. And I'm hoping that will be the next big change in terms of gender roles and family life. Such an excellent point. And it's true, there's such parallels of kind of the older worker wanting more time for life and the younger worker wanting more mm-hmm. time for life. I mean, mm-hmm. it, wouldn't it be wonderful if that mm-hmm. it could have that kind of impact and be optimistic? That is, yeah, that's an excellent point. All right, a couple of other comments here. Alan from Louisiana said, he said, I made my third 21st birthday last year and I'm now in my fourth childhood. <laughs> I think that's a good thing. And Karen from Minneapolis says, I felt a real sense of being outrageous as I skydived for my 70th birthday. I remember saying, I don't care any longer what others think. 
at about age 65 in regard to fashion and to keep up with the Joneses. Oh, man. It's an example of... Yeah, I was wondering, too, if you could say a little more. You and I, when we spoke on the phone, like, I, I had said to you, I'm 69, and I'm feeling this, that 70 really is a big age. And I'm trying to keep in mind age, not age, but it does feel that. And you said you were thinking about mm-hmm. 70, and I just wondered if you could elaborate on that. Well, I I'm trying to, to uh, as is my want, I'm trying to write about it, because... Uh-huh. That's how I figure things out. And it does feel, and I think it's the 3D and the gift of urgency. But when you cross that threshold, which is so arbitrary, we all know that, but it does put you in a frame of mind anyway, where things that you used to mention, beginning with the word if, you now find yourself saying when. And I think the awareness that death doesn't happen to other people and that it is right there around any corner does change your way of looking at every day. And I have this coffee cup that I look at every morning and it has a Hallmark card kind of phrase, but it says, Every day is a gift. That's Mm. why they call it the present. And I think that's the message that becomes louder after 70. Yeah, I think I've been, it'll be interesting to see when I turn 70, because I think I've been feeling that for a while. I so embrace that every day is a gift, and that's why they call it the present. It's so true. So Elizabeth from Florida says, do you have any suggestions for making new friends at this phase of life, particularly when moving to a new community? Yeah, that's a big question, and it's an important one. There are the obvious things like going back to school, and it turns out that a lot of people, when asked why they went back to school, say that it was to meet new people. And people who have religious, obviously, can find a place to go. I am a great believer in just sort of spontaneous combustion. I am not very good at going places alone or being in a coffee shop or going to theater alone or something. But I do feel that if you push yourself a little bit and if you smile at people, you never know. And I've always felt when I was trying to meet people, <laughs> in other words, men, I always yes. believed that if you go and do what interests you, you are more inclined to find like-minded people. Know that if you to go trekking, <laughs> skydiving, museums, whatever it is, if you go to those places, the chances are there are people there that you will find compatible. And there's this, I don't know if there's a transition network in Florida, but it's a, it's for women who are making this transition from work to some kind of retirement. And I've been involved with them for a long time. You can check them out, the transition network. And 
they have lectures and seminars and outings and a whole lot of events that bring together like-minded women. And I've been told by many women that they've made some of their most interesting new friends through that organization. And it does exist in many states. I don't know about Florida, but I don't either. in Boston now. But the other thing is lifelong learning programs. Hmm? They are all around now, which are fabulous places of both people being able to teach, to learn, and it's community building. But that's really what sort of talking about doing things that interest you. And the hope is to develop friendships, but also develop a sense of community with other people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, as we know, is a life-saving ingredient in our lives as we age. It certainly is. Certainly is. So let's see. Alan just offers this that another D word is divorce. And got it. And then Annie from from Massachusetts says she's finding this very provocative and authentic conversation. She's appreciating it. Can you say more about changes in couples' relationship, especially changes for women, feisty, et cetera? She says, I know many women who say they wouldn't remarry if they lost their husband. What does all that mean? Just, I've heard that too. And I think a lot of women find themselves being not who they were, only older in their relationship and or and their marriages. And a lot of men are totally bewildered by this emerging feisty person who had been, it's a surprise to both of them. Let me put it that way. And it certainly was my experience that I could feel myself changing within the relationship and we've now been married 48 years and people say to me oh my goodness that's amazing and I have to tell them that the first 37 were the hardest long marriages tremendous amount of number of pitfalls and the divorce rate goes up at this stage and it's part of the getting rid of toxic experiences in your life. And many, majority of the divorces are initiated not by men who run off with their secretaries, but by women who say, wait a minute, I don't want to waste any more time on a marriage that doesn't work. On the other hand, there are a lot of people who find that their marriages have the potential to work better. And one interesting, I love these little scientific facts. One interesting explanation for that is that it's hormonal. That as women's estrogen goes down, the testosterone that has always been in the mix suddenly becomes more pronounced. And that may explain some of our feistiness and energy and toughness. But what's interesting is that at the same time, men's testosterone levels are going down. So that there's more hormonal compatibility. And men often talk about a sort of nesting feeling that they have, that home matters more, that Nuggling matters more. And that there is, that while we are changing in these big dramatic ways, which we're very aware of, men are changing also in ways that may make us 
more, not less compatible. Yeah, I've seen, I've read that too. And I think I, I see it just among clients that come in talking that it's almost like men mellow more and women find their voice and maybe become more assertive. And there can be a tension and a rub, but it's new possibilities and new beginnings. If the history and the caring and all of that can expand for that, it can create a new life, a new exciting life together. Yes. I guess when it doesn't, that when people go on their separate ways. But I do see that happening. It's interesting. And I remember reading that even with the Myers-Briggs that it's not unusual in midlife that there's shifts in preferences and all too, which I think reflect that kind of study. Yeah, but then it's fueled by the shifts in hormones. Very interesting. Now, a couple some more questions here. Let's see. Loretta from Denver says, I love my 40s. My favorite birthday so far was 50. As today is my mom's 94th birthday, I struggle with imagining decades of retirement. Can you comment on the stages of retirement? Well, I, with all due respect to you, Doris, I think retirement is not a good effort. It's not. No, yeah, it's not. I agree. Retire, it means step back. It it has tired in it. Everything we've been talking about is invention, revival, exploration. Retirement is only connected, really, to work. And we're going to have to find a way to define this. It's a new stage of life. And we haven't got the language for it yet. And that was, again, one of the issues of the women's movement was finding the language to, so that we could tell each other about our lives. And we haven't got there yet. This organization yeah. that I'm on the board of, Encore, the word Encore is supposed to describe this stage of life. Doesn't quite do it. Yeah. It so either. anybody who's got yeah. any word, Dory, pass them on to me if they send them okay. on to you. That's why I say revolutionize retirement. Mm-hmm. It's a terrible word, and it was a word that came really in the 30s with when people were retiring from standing on their feet for so long. And it conveys the retiring from life. And it's right. just, yeah, and it's just it's changing how you work. But there isn't the right term, maybe regenerating, reinventing, revolution. We've got to find a different word. I agree. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. So Mary also offers in terms of meeting people, she says meetup groups on the web are another place to identify others who are interested in the topics you're interested in. I've heard about that too. And Jim from Maine said he loved the concept of fertile void and comparing it to others. And Donna said there's a very active chapter of the Transition Network in South Florida, lots of events. She looked it up while we were talking. Oh, terrific. Thank you for looking it up. Yep. And Elizabeth says from Florida, says Florida Atlantic University, Jupiter has awesome second half of life programming schedule. And so people are just commenting on that. I was wondering, I know we're a little going a little over, but you said you had a little more time and I know you haven't spoken about the horizontal role models, but I really like that part too. And you kind of implied it, but I love that term. Mm-hmm. wondered if you could just comment on that, what you mean by that. I'm glad you asked because that's another one of the ways that we get through this new stage. If it's new, which we think it is, then it, it 
no surprise that we cannot look to our mother and father's generation for role models and examples. And we can't look to the younger people who are making their own changes. So we have to look to each other. And I think we have developed a way, thanks to the women's movement, which gave us the language and gave us the trust in other women. We shouldn't forget that certainly in my mother's generation and certainly in my early school years, we were warned not to trust women, that if you got too close to a woman, she would try to steal your boyfriend. She would gossip behind your back. Women had a very bad reputation among women. And one of the things that the women's movement did was help us have opportunities to trust each other and to build up a culture of trust. This is another resource that we have, which is each other. And that's why groups like the Transition Network take advantage of that. And Somebody has had one part of the experience and somebody else has had another part of the experience. And as we share, we enlarge our sense of what the experience is. And we reinforce each other and we reassure each other. Because just like every other stage in that women's evolution in the recent time, our first instinct is to think we are either the only one or that we're crazy. Really true. And I think that's where it does come full circle. When you, when we think about what these last 40, 50 years have been about, it's just, it's been phenomenal. I had pleasure of seeing there's a movie, which if any of you at different places where you live have a chance to see, it's called She's Beautiful When She's Angry. And it's a movie that chronicles the women's movement. And it just being a woman, of my age now, it was just so interesting to see and to think about where things were and where we've come. And I was just thinking about even the languaging that you were talking about, Suzanne, that just this simple, which wasn't simple at the time, changed from either myth or missing to myth. Mm-hmm. And when you think about how phenomenal that was, because then women weren't being defined just by the state of relatedness or relationship that they were in, that there was this opportunity to think of themselves as an individual and separate and empowered. And in the same way, we need to think about it. You're saying, and I agree, a new word for retirement and a new word for who we are, like boomers doesn't really cut it. Or I don't know. <laughs> And there's, there's, there are different groups in the women's movement. Some are more extreme than others. And there's, one group that is pushing for that we should call our older self crone because in some cultures that was a word of respect to elders who had mystical powers. But I don't want to be a crone either. Yeah, that word doesn't work. And many people have been taking elders and for some that works and for some it doesn't, but Right. No, that's a whole new identity of saying I'm an elder. And there's some wonderful organizations, Conscious Eldering Network and Saging International is connected to this whole consortium. But none of the words quite work. Wouldn't wouldn't it be nice if all we had to say was, I am me? That's the recalibrating and saying, who am I? I'm me. I like that. (laughs) That would be good. Another comment here. Bill says, I recommend we keep up. Bill from Maine, I recommend we keep up physically regular workouts. Very important to keep up with technology. 
Wear clothes body appropriate. Avoid face lift, but lifts, but firm as much possible. But firm as much as possible. <laughs> All right. That was then. It's hard to decide what question. Oh, Elizabeth says she likes the word zoomers. Yeah, I thought that one too. Zoomers. Pretty good. Yeah. Got the zesty, feisty, zooming. <laughs> yeah, that was Suzanne. It has been wonderful. I have so enjoyed the opportunity to talk with you. There's so many things I feel like, as I said, I resonate with. I also was a later in life mom and all kinds of different stuff in life. But it's just so wonderful, as you say, to realize there are these kindred spirits and we can be role models for each other and we're not crazy. And I, there's just, it's an exciting time of life, but it's true that we have to keep confronting our own internalized ageism as well as society's ageism right. as right. we get older. So did any last, any takeaways or last things you would what like was, to leave us with? What I was going to say is that I think your audience is terrific. And just exchanging those kind of ideas is the most, one of the most productive things we can do is question together. Being alone, this poet Marianne Moore said, and I think she's right, is that the best cure for loneliness it's solitude, being alone with yourself and getting to know yourself. But being alone is not, full-time alone is not a good thing either. So sharing and naming things and, as always, laughing and telling the truth, if we can do that at every opportunity with people that we feel drawn to, it's going to make our lives that much more interesting. Well, oh, that's terrific, Kat hear you say clearly and think about and laughing, being authentic, telling the and I totally agree. It's getting to know ourselves, but also connecting with other people part mm -hmm. of the stage of life. So let's I just want to remind everybody that Suzanne's books are listed. Why don't you just say your website so people have it? It's www.suzannebraunlevine.com. And I think you'll find it filled with all kinds of, she has blogs and their past references to things, speeches that she's done and the listing of all of her books. And I really, as I said at the beginning, I totally recommend Suzanne's book. They just, they read like you're in conversation with her. Yeah. And I think you'll find them really helpful. And we didn't, I didn't, I mentioned the title, but also as I discovered because I hadn't been aware of that title. When you say 50 is the new 50, that's what I say to people. It's not the new 30s or whatever, but mm. 50 is the new 50. And that's what your work is all about. It ties in with just celebrating who each of us are and me being able to say, I'm just me. It's a nice thing to be able to do. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. And thank you again so much, Suzanne, for being part of this. And thank you all for being here. Thanks. Well, I enjoyed every minute. Great. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio with Dr. Dorian Mincer. To learn more about the resources mentioned on today's show, listen to past episodes, or download our free retirement transition guide, visit revolutionizeyourretirementradio.com.